Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henricus, Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am popping on for just a minute to tell you about a great event coming up. On May 18th through May 21st, Sisters in Crime is hosting an online auction to benefit the Innocence Project. This is part of Stephanie Gale, the immediate past president's project. Uh, She wanted to raise $35,000 in honor of Sisters in Crime's 35th anniversary to benefit the Innocence Project. And she and a team of terrific volunteers have gathered some really wonderful things um, in the auction. If you're a writer, there are query letters and uh, meetings with agents. If you're a fan and a reader, so many people have offered to come into a book group um, online, including uh, Deanna Rayburn and Maddie Day and others. There's also several naming opportunities, including Michael Connolly's newest novel, which will be out in November. The Vera Trenchcoat is up for auction and a bunch of other really terrific items perfect gifts for folks. So again, it's May 18th through May 21st. You can go to Sync for Justice, S-I-N-C, number four, justice.com. I'll put that in the show notes. And it's for a great cause. So please check out the auction site. Hello, this is Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome J.A. Jantz to the podcast today. With over 21 million copies of her books in print over a career spanning four decades, New York Times bestselling author J.A. Jantz is the author of the Allie Reynolds series, with Collateral Damage being the most recent, the J.P. Beaumont series, the Joanna Brady series, a series of Southwestern thrillers featuring the Walker family, a volume of poetry, and more. Born in South Dakota and brought up in Bisbee, Arizona, she lives with her husband in Seattle. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Um, I was looking over your website and uh, reading blog posts. You are a prolific writer, um, but you're also a regular blogger. And I suggest people go and read the blog because it's a very conversational way of of learning more about you. Um, But in this In this podcast, I always start with the question, when did you first decide that you wanted to be a writer? And and in reading your about me on your website, I got some insight into that. But I thought, let's start there with this conversation. It starts with my second grade teacher, Lucy Spangler, at Greenway School in Bisbee, Arizona. In her classroom over under the windows, there were bookshelves stuffed with books. And if you finished your work early, which I often did, you could leave your desk, go to the bookshelves and choose uh, books to tape back to your desk. And it was among Lucy Spangler's books 
that I first encountered the Oz books by Frank Baum, not just The Wizard, but all those other wonderful Oz books mm -hmm. as well. And as I read those books, I wasn't so much enchanted by The Wizard and what he was doing. What struck me was the idea that a living, breathing human being put those words on paper. And from that moment on, that's what I wanted to be. And that's what I wanted to do. Be that person putting the words on the pages. A few years ago, in the lead up to the Tucson Festival of Books, the, uh, a local camera crew for a TV state news station came out to do an interview. And the cameraman turned out to be Lucy Spangler's grandson, who inherited wow. all of the books. And it was so wonderful to have the opportunity to tell him what a huge impact having his grandmother as my second grade teacher made on my whole life. Oh, I bet that meant the world to him to hear. Well, it's in second grade, though, to to understand that there's somebody who wrote those books. I, I don't know that I, I would have understood that completely. Um, what... What helped you understand that there was a writer there creating this work? Well, somehow I figured it out. Yeah. I, I don't know what it was, actually. This is a funny story. When I, I began practicing writing fiction at a very early age, we were still living on the farm in South Dakota, so I must have been between three and four years old, and we were headed in... We're living on a farm and headed into town to buy groceries. We were on the road leading out to the county road, and I let out a blood-curdling scream, and my father jammed on the brakes, and my two older sisters and I all slid under the front seat because there were no seatbelts in 1948. And he turned around and he said, what in the world is the matter? And I said, you forgot my lammy. But of course, my lammy was entirely <laughs> imaginary. So my father had every reason in the world to have forgotten him. <laughs> so I was creating stories and characters in my head almost from the time I could talk. Yeah. And then you, you know, you your education and your your life um, you know, went along and but it your career as a writer started over 40 years ago. But tell me about that journey, because I think that that's, um, in reading it, it's an important journey for people to hear about, because uh, about some of the obstacles that were in your way. Well, it's it's hard to imagine that in, in this day and age, that in 1964, I would have been denied entry into a creative writing program at a state university. But when I told, I was actually, I earned my way through school partially by working in the English department at the University of Arizona. And in the summer before my junior year, I was putting the mail in the faculty mailboxes and the creative writing professor came in and I said, oh, I'm hoping to sign up for your class this fall. And he looked at me and he said, you're a girl. Oh. <laughs> so, so he said, girls become teachers or nurses, boys become writers, and he didn't allow me into his class. Um, I married a guy who was allowed in his class and who got a grade, good grade in his class. He never published anything. He uh, imitated Faulkner and Hemingway 
primarily by drinking too much and writing too little. <laughs> but that didn't keep him from telling me in 1968, shortly after we married, that there was only going to be one writer in our family, and he was it. Mm. So while we were married, other than writing poetry under the dark of night when he was passed out cold in his recliner, I didn't do anything about my own writing until the early 80s after I had divorced him and he he actually died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, a year and a half after I divorced him. So if you've been married, if, if you've been involved in an addictive relationship like that, you know that I lived through a, a particular kind of hell. Mm -hmm. But living through that hell I think it strengthened me. I think it gave me a lot of, my husband was sort of useless as worse as far as husband material was concerned. But from the point of view of a mystery writer, the guy was a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> so it will come as, maybe it will come as a surprise to some of my readers in my first hardback book, the first Walker family book called Hour of the Hunter. The main female protagonist, Diana Ladd, is someone who wasn't allowed in a creative writing program that was closed to her. Her husband was allowed to enroll, although she wasn't. When the book starts, he's dead at the beginning of the book. And the crazed killer turns out to be <laughs> a former professor of creative writing from the University of Arizona. And so I use all of that stuff, all of this, all of the things that come around my my husband my second husband the nice one to whom i've been married for 37 years by the way he maintains that i have a wearing blender in my head and stuff comes into my head through whatever it goes through the blending process and when it comes out through my fingertips and leaks into my computer keyboard it is fundamentally changed now <clears throat> I can I can give you two examples of that. Uh, years ago, my sister lived on this little mini ranch on the border in, in Cochise County. And they had a cow named Shirley. They had a horse, a pinto horse named Warpaint. They had a three-legged Australian shepherd named Smokey Joe. And they had a a pig named Oscar. <laughs> Warpaint was smart. And he knew that if it rained, the electric fence would go down and he'd let everybody out. So one day my sister came home from work. It had rained. So Smokey Joe helped her round up Oscar and the uh, and Shirley. But Warpaint was out in the pasture. Warpaint was one of these horses that if he was out in the pasture, if you came anywhere close to him with something that resembled a halter or a rope, he would stay just out of reach. So my sister walked up to him out in the pasture with nothing in her hand. And then when she got up next to him, she was sort of nuzzling under his neck. And while she was doing that, she whipped off her bra, wrapped it around his neck, and led him home. 
poor war paint world shifted on its axis. <laughs> he could never trust anybody after that. But when I was writing the fifth Joanna Brady book, she's in Skeleton Canyon. She's pinned down by gunfire and she needs to create a diversion. So she uses her bra as a slingshot to throw gravel and, and lead the shooters to think <laughs> she was someplace else. And I cannot explain how my sister capturing war paint with her bra became Joanna Brady using her bra as a diversion, but it's some it, it's something that happened inside the wearing blender. <laughs> so you are a very hardworking writer. You, you know, have written four series and, and you know, dozens of books. I mean, 21 million books sold. Um, and you've been doing it for a while, but all of these series, even the fact that you're able to remember titles of, of books and, and everything else, how do you, how do you create these different series and think about um, how do you start with these ideas? Well, when I wrote the first Beaumont book, I was writing a book and I had, I had no intention of writing a series. When I finished writing the book, I thought the book was over and I was astonished when Avon bought it as the first book in a series. I spent about six months trying to start that book and it wouldn't go anywhere. It would just, mm -hmm. it was just stalled out. So finally I still had grade school age kids at that point. So in the spring of 1983, I sent them to Orcas Island to Camp Orkila for spring break. And then I got on the train in Seattle to go to Portland and spend a few days with a friend from my life insurance time. So I got on the train with a stack of blue line notebooks and a fistful of pens. And as the train pulled out of the King Street station, I thought, well, what would happen if I wrote this story through the detective's point of view? Because I hadn't been doing that. So I got out a pen, I got out a notebook, and I wrote the words. She might have been a cute kid once. That was hard to tell now. She was dead. And from that moment, I was on the back of Magnolia Bluff. I was walking around the crime scene in J.P. Beaumont's shoes. I was seeing what he saw. I was hearing what he heard. I heard what he said. But I also heard what was going on in his, inside his head. Mm -hmm. And I wrote 35,000 words in five days by hand. I had blisters on wow. my writing finger. But once, once I was inside his head, Bo became this character. A, a few books ago, I needed, he's, he, and when I created him, I read the John D. McDonald books, the Travis McGee books, and Travis McGee always made the same mistake. He's fell, he fell for some sweet young thing who did him wrong and broke his heart, um, but he never seemed to get any smarter. He never seemed to change. And I made a decision early on that Bo was going to age over time. And, and, mm -hmm. and I've done that. And so he's now, he's, I gave him my birthday. So we would, I would remember how old he is. <laughs> so he's now in his seventies, he's retired from, from both his job at Seattle PD and his job with the special 
homicide investigation team, a.k.a. shit. Um, when I dreamed up shit, it made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and putting his boss at shit was a guy named Harry Ignatius Ball. Harry Eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> there are little things in the books that, that make me giggle. But um, a few books ago, what he's doing now in retirement is occasionally working cold cases. Mm. So in my Ellie Reynolds series, I was writing a book named Unfinished Business, and I needed it had ties to Washington. I needed a cold case investigator in Washington. And I thought, well, I've already got one. Why don't I use Bo? But he belonged to Harper Collins in the Allie Reynolds books or with Simon and Schuster. Uh, I negotiated a peace treaty so he could appear in this book. And then I wrote it. But my editor at Simon and Schuster, never having read the Beaumont books, I when I started out, the Allie books are told in the third person. And I thought, Bo would straighten up and be in the third person when it got to him, too. Except I was wrong. When I tried to write J.P. Beaumont in in third person, he just said, hell no, I won't go. <laughs> and so I finally said, okay, have it your way. And I wrote his parts of the book in third person. My Simon & Schuster editor, who had never met Beaumont, went through and changed all the first person parts to third person. And she told me she had done it. And I thought, well, you know, if they don't let doctors operate on their own patients, maybe if somebody else does it, it'll be okay. But it wasn't okay. Because as soon as I encountered J.P. Beaumont in the third person, instead of being this living, breathing entity that he had been for me all these years, he yeah. was suddenly a paper doll cut up. He was up. And so I Called her up and I said, sorry, either J.P. Beaumont is in the first person or you don't get this book. So <laughs> I was in the first person in that book. But it was so important to have his, to understand his nature. I, I wrote about him. He was a cop, first person. He's a cop. He can't work all the time. So he had to do something when he wasn't working. And uh, writer, they didn't let me into the class, but I figured out, well, writers write what they know, and I happen to know a lot about drinking. So I had Bo do the kind of drinking I had lived with for all those years. Mm. And four books in, I was at a book signing in Portland, and a lady came up to the table and she said, you know, Bo drinks every day. He has a drink of choice it is starting to interfere with his work. Does J.P. Beaumont have a problem? And I looked at her and I said, you know, these are books. <laughs> but over the course of that set of signings, and I've done approximately 30 signings for every book. Every book. That's a lot of signings. Oh, uh, six other people asked me the same question. Wow. And I finally realized that they were right. I had modeled that character after a problem drinker, and I had painted painted that picture so accurately that my readers recognized it long before I did. Wow. So eventually, Bo gets into treatment. Uh, he goes, he has his first blackout in book number seven. He goes into treatment in book eight, minor in possession. 
I'm working on book number 27. So he's been in recovery a lot longer than he was drinking. But on on my tour in Arizona this month, I did a signing in Casa Grande, Arizona. And a guy came up and had me sign Minor in Possession, the book where Bo goes into treatment. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've been sober for 29 years now. And J.P. Beaumont helped me get there. Wow. Did you have goosebumps? I had goosebumps. And the thing is, people, I I really am astonished by people's rudeness sometimes. Sometimes I I especially am offended by the people who come up to me at book signings and say, oh, I don't read. I don't read murder mysteries. And I understand what they're implying is that they are so important and their time is so valuable that they can't afford to waste it on something just for fun. I maintain that mysteries can contain a whole world mm-hmm. of impact. Uh, the the book, the Beaumont book, Second Watch, in which I combined J.P. Beaumont's fictional life with the life of the valedictorian of the class of 1961 from Bisbee High School, my hometown. Doug Davis uh, went from Bisbee High to West Point to Ranger School to Vietnam and died Mm. months before his 23rd birthday. Mm. And over the years, I became friends with the woman who was engaged to marry him when he died. And when the thought occurred to me, I knew that Bo and I were the same age and I was getting ready to write a book. And my one son had said to me, you know, Bo is as only a 40 something son can say to a parent, you know, Bo is getting sort of long of tooth. Have you ever thought of writing a J.P. Beaumont prequel? And I said, no, Tom, I have not thought about writing a prequel. But when it was time to write that book, the only idea I had was writing a prequel. So I was sitting there, I was thinking about how old Bo is and how old I am. And I remembered Doug Davis. And so I called Bonnie Abney, his long ago fiance, and said, what would you think if I combined Doug's story with J.P. Beaumont's fictional Mm one? And uh, that that is another book that has had profound impact on people who have read it. Mm Part of Bo's problem was that when he came back from Vietnam, he didn't reach out to Doug's family. And I've heard from many people who did the same thing. They came back and somehow failed to honor their fallen fellow soldiers. And so, again, that's just a murder mystery as far as some of those ladies, snooty ladies are concerned. But it's uh, it's a mystery. They're mysteries, yes. And there are crimes solved, yes. But there are real people mm-hmm. crimes. And that's what I try to get across. Mm-hmm. I wrote nine Beaumont books in a row. And uh, someone suggested I rework. The first book I wrote ever wrote was called By Reason of Insanity. It was a very thinly fictionalized version of an encounter my first husband and I had with a serial killer in Tucson in 1970. and. It was never published because partially because it was 1400 pages long. 
But writing 1,400 pages is the equivalent to writing three whole novels. And that was my on-the-job training. Mm -hmm. I learned how to write dialogue. I learned how to do pacing. I learned how to do plotting. I I learned how to do all of those skills that you have to bring to writing characters. So eventually, my editor said, well, when I threatened to knock Bo off after nine books in a row, he said, well, don't do that. Why don't you try writing something else? And so he said, remember that book nobody ever bought? I said, yeah, I remember that book. <laughs> so, well, why don't you why don't you rework that? And so I said, well, okay, they were willing to give me a book that wasn't written. They were willing to give me a contract. They were get, willing to give me an advance. Of course, I'll do that. But I didn't have a bad guy because the real bad guy was then in 1989, and still is in 2023, living life in prison in the Arizona prison system. And I didn't want to write a book that would attract him, get put me in his mm-hmm. view. So I didn't have a bad guy to go in the book. And that gave me a very bad case of writer's block. It was so serious that that year when my University of Arizona alumni magazine came, I read the whole thing from cover to cover. If that isn't a sign of (laughs) desperation, I don't know what is. And so uh, at the back, just before the obituaries, was this little box article saying that the newly reconstituted creative writing program at the University of Arizona was just going swimmingly. So I turned to Bill, my second husband, the good one, and I said, you know, I graduated from there and I've got all these books out. Maybe they'd like me to come to Tucson and be writer in residence for a semester in the sun. He said, call them up, ask them. Well, I sold life insurance for 10 years. I am not afraid of making a cold call. So I called him up, told him who I was and what I did. And didn't he want me to come be writer in residence? And he said to me, and this is a direct quote, oh, we don't do anything with genre fiction here. We only do literary fiction. Mm -hmm. It was a miracle. I was healed of writer's block on the spot. And the University of Arizona creative writing professor went straight into that book as the bad guy. (laughs) That's how I create characters. (laughs) So then it was time when I went back to write the next Beaumont book. It was fun again. So my editor said, okay, come up with, come up with another character. It can, and we can sort of alternate between Beaumont and that character. Mm-hmm. So I decided that at writing in the first person through a male point of view in a city where I had lived less than two years at the time I started, that was really hard work. So I thought, well, why don't I press the easy button? Why don't I do third person? Since I am female, why don't I have a female protagonist? Um why don't I set it someplace I really know well? So I chose Choose County. I was six feet tall in seventh grade, and I always wondered what it would be like to be short. And so I made Joanna Brady short. So, so I have to, when I'm writing about her, I have to learn to see the world through her point of view, which is a lot different from my point of view. So I sat down to write that first scene in. Joanna Brady. And my I start at the beginning and I write to the end. I don't outline. Okay. I, I I I that's where I start. And that book starts, the first Joanna Brady book, Desert Heat, starts with 
Joanna at home on High Lonesome Ranch in Cochise County, Arizona. She is married to a deputy sheriff who is running for office. And it's their 10th anniversary. They're about, she's waiting for her husband, Andy, to come home so they can go out and go to dinner to celebrate their anniversary. She's there with her mother, Eleanor Lathrop, and her daughter, Jenny. And Jenny is this sort of bright little penny. And she's just had a hint of sex education at Greenway School in Bisbee, Arizona. And so in the middle of this conversation with her mother and her grandmother, she pipes up and says, Mom, was I a preemie? Well, actually, she was not a preemie. She was on time. The wedding was late. <laughs> and she had just thrown a hand grenade into the conversation because she's nine years old and her mother has been pissed. Joanna's mother, Eleanor, has been pissed as as hell that her daughter had to have a shotgun wedding. So we don't find out until several books later that Joanna's parents actually had a child out of wedlock that they gave up for adoption long before they got married and had Joanna. So that little bit of interaction in that on the first couple of pages in Desert Heat sets in in motion this string of story yeah. that lasts through throughout the books. And it's it even now after Joanna's mother died, it's still impacting her relationship with her daughter. And I don't know how I did that. That was I th- I think that's part of the storyteller's gift. And that's what makes writing magic sometimes because those things happen without your necessarily knowing it. Mm-hmm. Of, of course, part of the problem with Joanna and her mother is Joanna's mother was the last, Eleanor was the last parent standing. And if you are the last parent standing in a family, as I am, the parent who is dead gets a free pass. The one who is left is the source of all evil. And to this day, I have a son who hasn't spoken to me for 25 years because it's been a better wife and mother. His father wouldn't have died of alcoholism when he was in second grade. So that I I didn't consciously put it into the background of the books. Mm -hmm. But just as Eleanor was the last parent standing in her family, Joanna is the last parent standing in hers. Mm-hmm. And parallel storylines are going along merrily on their way while Joanna's people and while she's elected sheriff, how she becomes a professional law enforcement officer and her people are solving crimes. That personal story is in the background. And I think that's part of what brings my readers back to my stories so often. They get involved in the characters' backstories it, it, to a greater extent, I believe, than in the action of the story that's going on at the front of the screen. Do you think one of the reasons that that, um, that professor sort of dismissed genre is because the preconception is that it's all plot-driven? And of course, as you're discussing, it's character driven as well. I, I agree with you. I think that um 
literary Kate Flora always said literary is just another type of genre (laughs) it's not you know when when people say that but but I love how you're talking about how character driven your work is and and how these characters are showing up but you're also showing tremendous growth for them over the course of the series well when I when I started writing the Allie Reynolds books um once again, I was tired of all of my characters. Part of what's made me be able to write series characters and keep them fresh is that I'm not always writing about the same character. I could not have written all of those books about Kenzie Milhone in a row without strangling her somewhere along the way. So I was really tired. I had been alternating Bo Brady with an an occasional walker, but by the early 2000s, I was tired of all of them. And I was whining on the phone to my editor and she said, well, here's an idea. Why don't you create a new character? Why don't you write a book? It can be a new character, old character. Do you set it wherever you like, just have it here by the 1st of January and we'll publish it as an original paperback. Write a book in six months. I've been doing that for years. I have actually written 1.5 books a year for 40 years. Wow. 1.5. The big exception to that was the new Allie Reynolds book, Collateral Damage, which took a whole damn year to write. You would think after all these years it would be getting easier, but it was it's not. But I so I had this opportunity to write something that was entirely new. Once again, they gave me a contract. I signed it. They gave me a check. I spent it. They gave me a deadline. And I was in deep caca because I had no idea who was going to be in this book. But that all, the contract was in May. I can write a book between May and January. I've done it before. No problem. Except June and July passed. August and September passed. Suddenly, it was the middle of October. And I still had no idea who was going to be in that book. At that time, when I had writer's block, which this clearly was a terrible case of, uh, I would compulsively watch the news. I don't do that anymore. The news is too bad. Now I just go out and walk. And by the way, that's part of my process. I walk 10,000 steps every day. Wow. I have, let me check. I have 20,627,000 steps and a 500-day streak going. Walking a minimum of 10,000 steps every day. And actually, this may seem off the subject, but that writing, I was the least athletic girl at Greenway School or at Bisbee High School. I had terrible vision. So, 2,800, 2,950 when I had my LASIK. So, I had no depth perception. I never saw a ball until it was about to hit me in the face. I could never kick a ball. I could never, I was just not athletic. But about seven years ago, my doctor said to my husband and me that if he didn't start walking, he was going to end up on a scooter. And I knew the only way to get him started walking was for me to start walking. <clears throat> so I started. And when I started, I would walk a thousand steps and then I'd have to rest and then I'd walk a thousand steps and then I'd have to rest. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd think, oh my God, I have to walk 10,000 steps today. 
this morning I went out and I walked 7,000 steps in 69 minutes. And that has really served me in incredibly good form during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Time when I am out of the house, I'm away from my caregiving responsibilities. I'm away from taking, looking after the dogs. That is time for me. And I think I never expected to be somebody recommending physical exercise. If you're struggling with writing, something that's good for you to do is to do something good for your physical body Mm -hmm. and your physical, your physical and mental health. And for me, that has been walking. And during the pandemic, when we were locked up at home, getting out and walking on the driveway every day was Mm -hmm. incredible, incredibly uplifting to Mm -hmm. me. But let's go back to Allie Reynolds for a moment. So here it was, October. I didn't know who was going to be in that book. So we were, we had a second home in Tucson at the time. So I went into the family room at noon and I watched the new news. And one of my favorite newscasters in town, Patty Weiss, was on the air. Patty Weiss started working in Tucson News while she was still a student at the University of Arizona. So I watched the noon news and the five o'clock news came around that Thursday. And I was still having writer's block. So I went to watch the five o'clock news and Patty Weiss was nowhere to be found. She wasn't on assignment. She wasn't on vacation. She was just gone. And over the course of the weekend, the other news outlets in town reported that between the new news and the five o'clock news, Patty Weiss's new 35-year-old news director came to her desk, told her she was too old to be on TV, and escorted her from the building. Well, it's a bad idea to make a mystery writer mad. Within, that was on Thursday. By Monday, I was writing about Allie Reynolds being yanked off her news anchor desk in L.A. and coming home to Sedona, Arizona, her hometown, to duct tape her life back together. And in actual fact, of all my characters, I think I have the most in common with Allie Reynolds because when I hauled a U-Haul trailer with my kids and all our worldly possessions to Seattle, from Phoenix to Seattle, I was still selling life insurance. The dream, my dream of being a writer was, I thought, gone for good. Mm-hmm. And to be where I am now, it's just, it's been an incredible transformation. And I think Allie's going from being a newscaster to being CFO of High Noon Enterprises is a similar journey. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess what Part of my process is that my characters have been on their own journeys, and those journeys are a reflection of my journey. Mm-hmm. But when a creative writing professor says, write what you know, well, that's sort of like you have to think big philosophical things. Well, one thing I know is that growing up in Bisbee, Arizona, there were two dentists, the good dentist and the cheap one, the cheap one didn't use any Novocaine, but every day he had a three martini lunch at the country club. And so by the time kids came to him after school, he he was too drunk to drive a car to say nothing of to be rummaging around in people's yeah. mouths with dental equipment. And so it's hardly an accident that there's a dead dentist on the first page of my seventh book. You write what you know, but you know 
small things that bring characters to life. Mm-hmm. Well, and they bring them, they're sparking um, themselves in your brain. You know, this that story about noticing this newscaster gone and then finding out why, and that being the launch of a new series um, is is another, another example of your incredible imagination, but also the magic of this, of, of everything's whirring and you've got this deadline. It's like, oh, let me, thank you. <laughs> thank you, universe. So, so I mentioned that writing this most recent Allie Reynolds book, Collateral Damage, took an entire year, mm-hmm. March of 2021 to March of 2022. And it moved at an utterly glacial pace. My husband is a retired electronics engineer and engineers fix things. So more than once in my writing career, I have turned to him and said, could you read this and tell on deadly stakes? I said, could you read this manuscript and tell me how to finish it? I can't figure out how to do it. So he read it and he said, well, why don't you do it the easy way? So I did. The easy way was right there in front of me. I just hadn't chosen to pick it. So for collateral damage, I, so I refer to him now, he's a retired electronics engineer, but a a still working literary engineer. (laughs) So for collateral damage, I wrote what would have should have been about a third of the book, but I was at my wit's end and I finally gave it to him and said, would you please read this and tell me what you think? So he had it for rather a long time, longer than I expected. And he finally handed it back to me and he said, I can't read this. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and so I tried to read it and he was absolutely right. It was a mess. Do you remember that old Sunday school song, the wise man built his house upon a rock? Well, collateral damage, the way I was writing it to begin with, was built on sand and it just, it wouldn't hold up. So I had to do a complete rewrite. I had to go back to the beginning. I had to introduce the bad guy because the bad guy was this ghost in the background and we didn't know who he was or what made him tick or why he was He is a revenge-fueled serial killer. He's out to get the people who sent him to prison some 20 years earlier. And and there are jurisdictions all over the country. There are two Southern California jurisdictions. There's a crime going on in Eugene, Oregon. There's a woman shot dead on the steps of a domestic shelter in St. Paul, Minnesota. And the only people who know, who have any kind of an idea that all of these things are connected is Allie Reynolds sitting in Sedona, Arizona, because she happens to have at her disposal her own sort of private artificial intelligence. Now, how did an artificial intelligence get into a book? Well, I work in the family room with my computer on my lap. I sit in an easy chair. I have very long thighs, so my computer fits on my lap. My husband's chair is next to me. And he sits in his chair. He watches TV. And that's not a problem for me because I grew up in a family of seven kids. And we all did our homework at the dining room table, kitchen table, while our mother was cooking dinner. So I can work in a fair amount of chaos. So I'm sitting there one night minding my own business. And my husband says, you know, AI is pretty interesting. You You should write a book about AI. And I looked at him and I said, are you talking to me? 
old relevance major, remember? <laughs> but he started handing me articles about AI. So I read them. They went through the blender. And what came out is an AI named Frigg. She is a computer program who was created by this very smart computer scientist who was really a wannabe serial killer. And he created her to be his sidekick in his career as a serial killer. So all the deep learning he did with her was all the illegal things that you shouldn't be able to do, all the information you shouldn't be able to gather. And so Allie has access to this. And with Frigg's help, they're able to see the pattern in all of these various crimes and know they know that one person is responsible. But the trick is they can't let anybody know how they know. So in this in this situation, Allie is the puppet master directing the action of all of these other jurisdictions, but she's not actually in danger herself. So it's usually the, the main character is the person who's in jeopardy. But in this instance, it wasn't. And so when I finally finished the book and, and turned it in, I thought it was, while I was struggling with it, I thought, you know, maybe I've lost my mojo. Mm. Maybe this is the last book I'll ever write. Maybe I'm, I'm completely over. But while I was writing that book, I received a phone call from a friend in Oregon. Uh, she's a police, a retired police and a fire chaplain, but she did a lot of work in as a hospital volunteer in the Portland area. In the 90s, there was a serial killer known as the boxcar killer. He traveled the rails and he did hate crimes before hate crimes were a thing. And his preferred method of killing someone was he he hated Native Americans. And so he preferred to push them under moving trains to kill them. That mm -hmm. was his. Although on tour, I met a woman whose nine-year-old niece had an encounter with him and he cut her throat, but he missed her carotid arteries and she was smart enough to play dead. And so she survived. But anyway, this guy was operating all over the West. He's in prison in Wyoming, I believe. He pled guilty to five murders. So he's doing life without several times over. But in the 90s, uh, there was this Lakota guy, a Sioux Indian, working in a small town somewhere in southern Oregon. And uh, he was working in the rail yard when he had his encounter with the boxcar killer. His, the uh, Lakota's name was James. And he was pushed under a train, dragged for a mile and a half before the train was stopped. And uh, the cops showed up. They declared him dead. They zipped him into a body bag and held, had him hauled off to the local morgue, which was in the basement of the community hospital. It was a small enough community that one of the nurses on duty knew James, knew he was Lakota. And when she got off shift, she went down to the basement, to the morgue, to wash his hair, which is a longstanding Lakota tradition. When she unzipped the body bag, his arm came out because he wasn't dead. So they took him from the morgue to the OR for the first of countless surgeries. Eventually, they were able to sort of put him back together. Uh, 
He was a paraplegic, of course. He was in a, a, cha- a wheelchair. He lost the use of his right hand. He had to learn to use his left hand. He had to learn to speak again. He had to learn to read again. And while he was in, so he was hospitalized for years over the course of all these operations. Loretta, whose whose first husband, my friend Loretta, whose first husband was Lakota, and whose kids are, as a consequence, half Lakota. Loretta has a very strong affinity for all things Native American. And while he was in the hospital, she was a fan of mine. She read my books to him. Mm. And because Hour of the Hunter was her favorite of my books, she read that to him. He spent the next 20 years of his life, once he was able, ministering to disaffected urban Indian youth, trying to get them back on the right path. Shortly before he died, two months before he died in 2021, Loretta spoke to him on the phone and he said, tell your friend Judy she needs to write more Walker family books. There aren't enough Indian heroes. Mm. So she called and told me that while I was struggling with collateral damage. Well, my mother, Ebby, had a lot of roles. You had to be done with your homework by the time you needed to set table for dinner. But when dinner came around, you had to eat a little bit of everything and everything on your plate. I can still gag at the very thought of parsnips, but that's another story. And you weren't allowed to have dessert until your plate was clean. So I have taken that into my literary world in this way. I'm not allowed to think about the next book until I clean my plate of the one I'm working on right now. Mm -hmm. So when I was finally finished with collateral damage, I was ready to write this next Walker book. But the Walker family books have titles that have a certain cadence. Hour of the Hunter, Kiss of the Bees, Day of the Dead, Dance of the Bones. And so I needed to have a title that sounded like that. I knew it was going to be a book about missing and murdered indigenous women. Mm. So to you, and, and because they're usually young women, girls, teenagers, and young women in their 20s, I, I wanted to use the term lost girls, but I had I couldn't think of a good title. Uh, the other thing is they also have a certain kind of, those titles have a bit of irony in them because you don't think of bees kissing and you don't think of bones dancing. So finally, after several sleepless nights, I went to my literary engineer and I said, <laughs> I need a title for the next Walker book. And it needs to sound like a Walker title, it needs to have the words lost girls in it, but it needs to have some kind of irony in it. And he thought about it for all of five minutes. And he said, well, what about Blessing of the Lost Girls? Mm. Started writing Blessing the next day. And I wrote that book in two months flat. I just finished doing the galleys. It's due out in September. Wow. That's amazing. And you will meet James in that book. He is, his name isn't James. His name is John Wheeler. James told my friend, there aren't enough Indian heroes, and now he is one. Hmm. Oh, goosebumps again. That's a what a lovely legacy for him and for his, you know, amazing he, life. He called he called his wheelchair his iron pony, and it's dedicated <laughs> to James and his iron pony. Oh, 
Oh, what a story. <laughs> so again, you know, your blender, but also how it comes out in these um, these wonderful stories. You're such a good storyteller anyway, never mind the, the, the writing. Um, do you, do you, you said you don't let yourself think about the next book or have those characters come in until you're done with the one you're working on. Um, do you know what the next book is going to be though? I mean, do you sort of contracts and everything else help, but because the Joanna Brady's, the Beaumonts, and the Walkers all belong to HarperCollins. So both the Walkers and Joanna Brady characters show up in Blessing of the Lost Girls. Oh, that's great. So now it's time for another Beaumont book. But my my Harper characters sort of have to take a number and wait in line for their turn. <laughs> Um, and you're, uh, you're, you've given us so much to think about when you're talking about process and writing and, and picking tenses and having characters speak to you and stories that resonate. So you really, you get your characters, you've got the, the feeling, uh, you know, that you want, but you don't know what's going to happen when you sit down and write that story. If I, I met outlining in Mrs. Watkins' sixth grade geography class. I hated outlining then. Nothing that has happened to me in the intervening decades has changed my mind about outlining. So I I write murder mysteries. So I usually start with somebody dead or dying, mm-hmm. spend the rest of the book trying to figure out either who did it and why, or I know who did it and is he going to be caught? He, she going to be caught. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't know. If I if I knew everything that was going to be in a book, I would have no reason to write it because I write for the same reason people read to find out what's going to happen. And I, you know, again, I read your blog and I'm hearing you talk about the challenge of writing during the pandemic. You do go on tour and you do readings. And I was reading that you had so many people at one library event. You told the librarian, I'll do a second one. Like, just tell people to come back. Do you enjoy meeting folks? Do you think that that was one of the challenges of the pandemic and collateral um, damage is that you you couldn't get out and see people? That was doing a live event and hearing the response of a, of an audience is so different from sitting here talking into my computer in my in my dining room it's mm-hmm. i i really I, I took the dale carnegie course in 1981 when i first got to seattle and i took it because my insurance company was willing to pay the fee they would pay the enrollment if people would sign up for it so i signed up for it I found out it was a course in public speaking, and I just wanted to know how to sell more life insurance. But the only way the cost of the class refunded was to take the whole class. You had to graduate. And so we had to do a series of talks, and one of them was to give a talk about something that changed your life. And I thought, whatever happened to me, and then I remembered our encounter with a serial killer in Tucson. Mm -hmm. old people at 20 minutes after two on the 22nd day of the month and who an hour or so after 
leaving his third victim to die, gave my husband a ride home to our house. That was that was how we became part of that investigation. Uh, we lived 30 miles from town, two miles off the highway, seven miles to the nearest neighbor and or telephone. It was summertime and my husband often worked construction during the summer. So he was out of town for most of the next, for probably 40 of the next 60 days. I had a 12-month contract with a school library on the reservation. So I was there on the hill by myself. Mm. I, when, when the guy gave my husband a ride home, he gave him a ride not only to our turnoff, but up the dirt road to our house. And he said, you leave your wife out here by herself much. Well, my husband had no idea he was speaking to a serial killer. And he said, well, she's got the dogs. So once we knew that he had killed someone, we didn't know at the time that that he had killed other people as well. While I was there, I wore a loaded weapon. I was fully prepared to to fire it. It was a revolver. I fired all six shots one morning at a rapidly retreating rattlesnake who was still laughing when he went up over the wall and disappeared. But I figured if the killer showed up, he would present a larger target, and I was motivated. the detective figured out he used information my husband provided about items inside the car to identify who the killer was. So he knew within a matter of days who the killer was, but he also knew that he was a serial killer, that he killed people at 20 minutes after two on the 22nd day of the month. And this, the one on the reservation, the homicide on the reservation, occurred on the 22nd of May. So, but did he tell us about it? No, because as we all learned from what went on in Idaho this year, police can't talk about an active Mm -hmm. investigation with anybody. Mm -hmm. So on the 20th of May, he he knew that the guy had shot a 16-year-old girl off a bulldozer. He shot a 40-something-year-old, or a 16-year-old girl off a bicycle a 40-something-year-old man of a bulldozer, and this 28-year-old woman who was taking her two kids to Mexico for the weekend. Mm. So they picked him up on the 20th on the 20th of July. The detective was concerned that the incidents were getting closer together. So he took my husband up to San Manuel. My husband identified the killer as he came off shift. He rode in the car with him as they rode drove back from San Manuel to Tucson. And on that trip, he admitted to having been to our house on two separate occasions in the intervening 60, 60 days. Oh, my. So for my Dale Carnegie course, I thought, well, that happened to me. And it really did change me because I was there on the hill by myself. I was prepared to defend myself in the face of a very real danger. Yeah. Well, had a rope pull pump. I was able to get the pump started. If you can get your own water in the desert, if you can defend yourself in the face of danger, you gain a measure of independence that no amount of bra burning can ever duplicate. And I did burn a bra once. It was a nursing bra, which I tossed on a barbecue grill after dinner, but (laughs) it didn't really flame up. It just sort of charred around the edges. But I gave my talk about that that night. And one of my classmates during coffee break said, Somebody should write a book about that. And the thought that went through my head was, I'm divorced. What have I got to lose? That was in March of 1982. 
Mm-hmm. I started writing. That was thir- a Thursday night. I started writing on Sunday after church, and I finished that 1,400-page manuscript, writing by hand, on the 22nd of May. I was on fire. I put everything in that book, which is why it was 1,400 pages long. But I I got my money's worth from Dale Carnegie in terms of being able to do public speaking. But it also didn't change, it didn't turn me into a better life insurance salesman. Instead, it launched me on this whole other wonderful path. Mm And I've been one of the people who has been able to live my dream for the last 40 years. Yeah. Well, and and working hard um, while you're doing it. As we're wrapping up, what would be, you talked about that 1400 page book being your, you know, your MFA in writing it being, you taught you how to write. What would be the thing that you would tell aspiring writers? You know, what's the best piece of writing advice you can give? I took that manuscript to an agent. She looked at the book, at the box. She didn't actually touch the box. She said, this is your first manuscript. I said, yes. She said, cut it in half. So I did. And I called her back and I said, okay, cut it in half. And she said, who is this? (laughs) So I took it back to her and she tried to sell it. I used the real incident as the basis for the book, but I fictionalized it. So it was slightly fictionalized true crime. And the editors, so when after I cut it in half, she tried to sell it. The editors who turned it down said the stuff that was fiction was fine. And the stuff that was real was unbelievable and would never happen, even though it already had. And so she suggested that I write something that was entirely fiction. So I wrote the first Beaumont book, which was bought by the second editor who saw it. I think a lot of beginning writers make a fatal error because they had this manuscript that they love and they think is the best thing since sliced bread. And if they are fortunate enough to get an agent and the agent isn't able to sell it, they keep the manuscript and discard the agent. Mm -hmm. The agent who didn't sell my first book just sold my 65th book last week. Wow. A business partner. Yeah. And so I, I think that's probably the best advice I could give. But I've met a lot of people in the course of my writing career. And one of one of the real blessings in my life was being able to meet and become friends with someone who was always a star in my vision, Janice Ian. Mm-hmm. Um, six feet tall in seventh grade. I wore thick glasses. I was smart. So that was sort of in terms of social interaction, that was sort of a death sentence. <laughs> and when I heard Janice's iconic song at 17, I thought, boy, she and I have walked in the same moccasins. Of course, at that point, I had no idea that she was actually 4'10 and a half. She says 4'10 and a half. So the idea of walking in the same moccasins just would not work. But she and I met. And became friends because I often I often sang her song at the end of doing presentations. In 2008, I had agreed to do a writer's conference in Idaho when my husband's bilateral knee replacement surgery got moved from August to the week when I was supposed to be in Idaho. 
So I told my daughters, I'm just going to call the conference. I'm going to tell them, I'm sorry, I can't go. My husband's in the hospital. And they said, mom, we'll take care of dad. You gave your word. You keep your promise. We'll look after him. Boy, it is annoying when your kids start spouting the same things you do. <laughs> little. So muttering under my breath, I went. I gave the keynote speech at noon on Saturday. And Sunday night when I got back home, there was a note in my email from Janice Ian saying, I heard you sang my song in Boise and that you did a good job of it. And that was the beginning of our friendship. And so Janice Ian has been a star in my galaxy for decades. And uh, last summer, she was on what was supposed to be her final tour when in the middle of it, she developed a throat issue that meant her singing career was over flat. And so in honor of Janice Ian, I would like to close by singing her song. I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skin smiles who married young and then retired. The Valentines I never knew, the Friday night charades of youth were spent on ones more beautiful. At 17, I learned the truth. And those of us with ravaged faces, lacking in the social graces, desperately remained at home, inventing lovers on the phone who called to say, come dance with me and murmur vague obscenities at ugly girls like me at 17. A brown-eyed girl in hand-me-downs whose name I never could pronounce said, pity please the ones who serve. They only get what they deserve. The rich relation hometown queen marries into what she needs with a guarantee of company, haven for the elderly. Remember those who win the game, lose the love they sought to gain in debentures of quality and dubious integrity. The small town eyes will gape at you in dull surprise when payment due exceeds accounts received at 17. For those of us who learn the shame of Valentines that never came, for those whose names were never called when choosing sides for basketball. We all played the game and when we dare, we cheat ourselves at solitaire, inventing lovers on the phone, repenting other lives unknown, who called to say, come dance with me and murmur big obscenities at ugly girls like me. At 17, it was long ago and far away. The world was younger than today, and dreams were all they gave for free to ugly duckling girls like me. And I'm so fortunate all my dreams have come true. Oh, thank you so much for another goosebump moment and for such a wonderful conversations ja chance thank you thank you thank you thank you 
thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.